0: One, as we continue our study in Luke, we're now three weeks into uh, this wonderful gospel. We will certainly be here for for quite some time. It is, at least verse-wise, the longest of the gospels. And uh, so, get used to hearing me say, at this point, turn in your Bibles to the gospel of Luke. We'll be saying that for a while. So Luke, we have learned, has uh, taken careful, has studied carefully about the person of Jesus Christ. Luke is not an eyewitness of the events regarding the life and ministry of Christ, but we learned very early on in the very first part of his gospel, he tells us. However, what I've done is I have um, done very careful research, and put together a very orderly account, an account then that is accurate historically, factually, that this is an an accurate account of life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So then what he did was he described, first of all, the birth of John the Baptist, or at least the birth announcement regarding John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner, the one who proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the reason the kingdom of God is at hand is because the king has come, and the king being Jesus. And So the first thing we see then is John the Baptist, or the the announcement regarding the birth of John the Baptist. And today we're going to look at the, the announcement regarding, the birth of Jesus this is not the actual account of the birth of Jesus that's still to come but this is actually just the announcement that that Mary you you're going to give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus and so it is certainly important for us to see how Luke compares these two Two births these two birth narratives are put side by side to one another, and there is a little bit of a comparison going on we 're not going to delve into that, but I would exhort you to look at how we compare these these two births we 'll we'll mention it periodically, but the main theme here for us then for our purposes today is to show that these two birth narratives this these announcements that salvation the long awaited salvation that God has been promising actually all the way since the book of Genesis that that is now come, and that this salvation is totally and completely a work of God that um, God that the That the coming salvation, the the now present salvation that will be found in the person of Jesus Christ um, is a divine work. It is a work of God and is not of men. And we're going to see that theme over and over again today. How the work of God in our lives and the work of God through Christ is just that. It is a work of God. And so we will see the divine, supernatural nature of this work. Which brings us to where we're going to be spending a lot of time today. And I've titled this, Nothing is Impossible with God, and that's mainly because um, that certainly has to be the most prominent verse that we will be reading in this passage, that nothing is impossible with God. And being that nothing is impossible with God, we should look at one of the major themes of of this to help us understand that nothing is impossible. One of the major themes is the theme of grace. And where we're going to go today, then, under this big heading of nothing being impossible with God, is, first of all, Mary being the recipient and responder of grace. Notice that. Mary is not only the recipient of grace, but Mary also responds to grace. In fact, I will argue and suggest that that grace necessitates a response. One cannot be a recipient of grace and then do nothing. Mary receives grace, and then she acts on the grace that she has received. So that's the first thing we'll see. The second thing we want to take note of is that Jesus is both the possessor and the dispenser of grace. And this is important, for this was understood um, by the Jewish community that when Messiah comes, he would be the one who possesses and dispenses grace. So we will see today that Jesus is both the possessor and the dispenser of grace. And so, that by way of introduction, let's read. God's word. Follow along with me, if you will, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled, to say, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child, uh, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who." who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, first of all, let's begin with Mary, then, as the recipient of grace. And- before I get there, you know, I'm a preacher, so I have to set everything up. I can't just go directly to where I want to go. I have to talk about a bunch of other stuff first. So I'm going to talk about a few other things. First first of all, this is in the sixth month. And, and I assume what this means is it's the sixth month of, um, since Elizabeth's uh, conception. Um, it, I don't think it's the sixth month of the year, but it seems to be the sixth month after Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. And an angel, that is Gabriel, was sent forth from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And it's important that we understand, I think Luke is setting the stage for what is to follow, that an angel was sent forth from God to deliver a message, that that God that God speaks and then something happens. In this case, God speaks, Gabriel, go forth and do such and such, and such and such actually happens. And this is going to be important for us to understand as we go through this text, and certainly as we go through the the Gospel of Luke, that God speaks and the angel goes. In other words, God's Word produces effects. And this is important for us and imperative for us to understand, that when God speaks, things happen. And of course, we're going to see that um, throughout this passage of text. And through the, through the gospel, that God speaks and stuff happens. We see this, of course, very clearly in the creation account. What happens? God speaks. Stuff happens. God just doesn't say stuff randomly and speak for no purpose or with no effects. That when God says something, stuff happens. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth bring forth vegetation, and it does. Of course, a uh, passage of Scripture that that you all know is that God's Word will not return empty. That's a really fascinating passage of text in Isaiah where it says, Now the rain comes down, and it falls on the ground, and it produces grass, flowers, and fruit. In other words, the rain accomplishes exactly what it was supposed to do. It comes down, it waters the earth, and as the the earth gets watered, grass comes up, and vegetation grows. In other words, rain comes down, and it produces something. And then Isaiah goes on and says, so is my word. It goes forth and it will not return empty. It does something. So we see this in creation. We see this here. And I would also argue that we see this in the call to salvation, that when God calls a person to repent and come to the gospel, that it produces an effect. And so the angel of the Lord comes from the presence of God and comes into uh, the presence of Mary. And Mary then just kind of minding her own business, doing her own thing. And Gabriel shows up and says, here we are. He says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And I was going to spend a lot of time on this idea of greeting, but um, I don't think I will. It's just a greeting. Hail Mary, might even you might even say, or just—it's a, it's a greeting. It's it's a word of um, word of welcome, but perhaps even a word of rejoicing. Maybe some of your Bibles even say rejoice, because behind this idea of greetings is rejoice. And notice what this angel says to her. You favored one. Greetings, oh favored one. This is really important for us. This idea has comes from uh, one of the from the root of that meaning to grace. So greetings, graced one. Greetings, the one who is favored by God. And I'm going to get a little bit technical here. And some of you like this and some of you I may lose. But here we go. But it's good. I think so. The text informs us that Mary is not the bestower of this grace, but rather that she is the recipient of this grace. Greetings Favored one, greetings, grace one. Not that she is the bestower of grace, but rather she is the recipient of grace. This is a passive verb. And a passive verb, you all know, of course you remember this from your great school days, that the object receives the action, Mary's the object, and she is the recipient of grace. She is not the bestower of grace. And this is important for us to understand that Mary bestows no grace whatsoever. Rather, as a human person, she is one who receives grace and also based on the way this word is structured we realize that she is already favored she is already graced that God has chosen her sometime before this event she did not become grace at the when at the uh, consummation of this event but rather she became she was favored long before this event ever occurred so let me just summarize this Brief greeting. Greetings, Mary. You are the recipient of grace that God has bestowed upon you at some time previous to this moment. In other words, God's favor was bestowed upon her, not due to her righteousness, not due to her virtue, not due to her character, though I am certain that she is a virtuous, righteous, and, high, and a person of high character, but God did not grace her because of her virtue or characteristics. Rather, God graced her because God graced her. In fact, the very definition of grace is unmerited favor. It would, she would not be a great one if she had done something, um, if she had somehow somehow merited this favor of God. The text suggests no special worthiness on the part of Mary. And like I said, grace by its very definition is unmerited favor. And so Mary, I'm sure a woman, perhaps even a girl, um, people would say somewhere maybe between the ages of 12 and 15 at this point, has found favor unmerited favor with God. This is important for us then as we consider and look at what it means for us to be to live under the grace of God. And one of the distinctive aspects of the Christian faith is this idea of grace. It is what sets the Christian faith, it is one of the things, or one of the distinctives, that sets the Christian faith apart from pretty much every other religion. Grace, unmerited favor. That is that God bestows favor upon us because God bestows favor upon us. Not because of virtue or because of um, you've done something or God has seen some uh, aspect of you that he just thinks, man, I really need that in my kingdom. Boy, if I could only have that person on my side, then we would have something. Then my kingdom would go forth. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read a very, very dangerous passage of text. It's dangerous because it can get me into trouble because it has crazy words like election and predestination. But there it is in the Bible, so we're going to read it. Regardless of what your view on those two particular passages of text are, here they are. So let's read them since God gave them to us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Um, Well, I won't go, go all the way through 10, but... predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the beloved. I will stop there. That is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what? He has blessed us. How? In Christ. With what? Every spiritual blessing Blessed are you, because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us when before the foundation of the world, for what purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. How did he do this? In love, he predestined us for what purpose to be adopted as sons of through Jesus Christ, for what purpose? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. It is by God's sovereign will that he has blessed us. It is by God's sovereign will that he has chosen, predestined us, for the, for adoption through the blood of Jesus Christ, according to his riches in grace. Grace is unmerited. God did not look down upon this earth and see some merit in you, and on that basis did he his, Decide to bestow his grace upon you. I read back in the book of Deuteronomy, our first reading of the day had to do with God saying, I did not choose you because you were the most numerous or because you were the greatest nation. I chose you because I chose you. In fact, you were the smallest, you were the weakest, you were the fewest in number. I chose you. Too often times, I believe, we think of salvation as a transactional Agreement that we have with God and I'll spend a little bit of time there in just a few moments that is that I offer God something and on the basis of my offer God shows favor upon me that needs to be removed from our uh, thoughts that God loves us and blesses us and calls us to be his children through the blood of Jesus Christ according to his riches and grace. And so... Greetings, O oh favored one. The Lord is with you. There's two thoughts here regarding the Lord is with you. First of all, in regards to the presence of God, we should know that presence and grace cannot be separated. We cannot divorce uh, the presence of God from the grace of God. And I know a lot of people would love that. They want the grace of God and then God just to go away. Give me all your blessings. I want your grace, and then you can go off into the cosmos somewhere and turn your back on me so that you don't see all the stuff I'm doing. I just want your blessings and your goodness. Give me your grace, and then you can go away, and I'll do my own thing, and then when I need you again, I'll give you a call, and you can come and bestow grace upon me again and give me favor. Many people may want that, but here is the good news. The good news is that God bestows favor upon us, and with that favor comes... God's presence, in fact, we might even go as far as to say that the presence of God is God's favor. And his presence is evidence of his grace. But here's the other aspect regarding this idea of the Lord is with you. And I think probably this is the main idea that is being conveyed here. Uh, Greetings, Mary. Favored one. The Lord is with you. In other words, the Lord is. The presence of God is. Is there to equip. for What grace calls us to do. God's grace will require God's presence. In other words, Mary is going to need assurance that God is with her. Mary is about to embark on perhaps one of the most challenging tasks any human being has ever faced. First of all, she is going to um, experience something nobody's ever experienced, and that is conception by the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I know that Outside of a physical relationship, um, there is no birth. You know that, I know that, Mary knew that, and so did all of her neighbors. And so did her parents. Mary is going to end up living with the shame and degradation of being an adulteress. She's going to know the truth. Joseph will know the truth. Other people may know, but who's going to believe it? So Mary somehow has to tell her parents and Joseph, I'm pregnant. This is something, it's not what it looks like. You're favored, but you're about to go through a really big trial. The Lord will be with you. She's going to need to know the Lord is with her. Then she's going to end up raising the Son of God. God in human flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. She is going to raise this human child who is the divine Son of God. And by the way, He's going to split their family. She is going to raise a family that is divided. Now, we know that the brothers of Jesus, after his resurrection, came to know Christ. But prior to to that event, prior to the resurrection, the brothers did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Can you imagine that conflict? So she's got a divided house. The Lord is with you, Mary. Grace, we love grace, but the Lord is with you because grace may call you into a position where you are going to need the glorious presence of God to be with you. The other thing then is, Mary, you are going to watch your beloved son. The one you've raised, the one you've loved, the one who you know is the sinless son of God, you're going to see him falsely accused and murdered. And you're going to watch the murder take place and you're going to watch the false accusations take place. Mary, that is your lot in life. Wow, is she a favored one? The mean preacher look. <laughs> so here's the thing. The presence of God equips her for what grace has called her to do. Because God's grace will require God's presence. So God, we may say, well, I desire God's grace when God has placed his grace upon you and called you to be a follower of his, you will need his presence to live out the calling and to live out the grace that he has bestowed upon you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This is the interesting thing about grace is that grace is perplexing. She is Perplexed, first of all, it would be odd for a man to greet a woman in this, that day and age with such an address. Probably even more odd for an angel to address a woman in such a, a way. But more importantly, she is perplexed by an address that places her in such an exalted position. This is one of the perplexing things about grace, and that we see in Mary. And in other words, who am I that God would take thought of me? Who am I that God would favor me? She'd be perplexed. You favored one, really? I'm just a girl living in a podunk town in the middle of an occupied territory in the Roman Empire that nobody cares about. What? Really? you're calling me the graced one, the favored one, that God is with me? I don't quite get that. On what basis am I such a beneficiary of God's favor? Have you ever asked that question? Why me, God? No, not why bad things happen to you. No. Why would God set his love upon you? Why would God bring salvation to you? Why would God reveal himself to you? That's a perplexing question. I ask that nearly every day. Why me, God? Why would you do such a thing? And that is the mystery of grace. Or one of the mysteries of grace. Why me? What do I have to offer the King's glory? On what basis? Or of what virtue did he see in me? That's certainly a mystery. It's clearly defined in the book of Romans where it says for Christ um, at the right time, he died for the ungodly. Really? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we cleaned things up and presented him with some Something that might benefit his kingdom. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the mystery of grace. See, it is far too often that we attempt to demonstrate our worth as a means of God's favor. We treat our relationship with God as some sort of business transaction that works really well in the world. For instance, you know, I, I work hard. And so I get raised, or you know, I, I study hard and get a good grade, or I um, do something and, and and that merits some benefit. And that works fine in the world. It just doesn't. It just doesn't compute in in God's economy. That is, God will love me if, or God accepts me because. And how many people do you know you share the gospel with? He's teaching a class on uh, evangelism. And I would recommend and encourage you all to show up at 840 or the 9th, 845. And uh, be part of a class on evangelism. But many people, when you share your faith with somebody and they'll say, well, here's the thing. I think God will accept me on what basis will God accept you? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Right. I. Everybody I know is a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. And on that basis, God will accept me. And yet that is the furthest thing from the gospel. If I do this, then God will do that. We've, we've reduced the grace of God into a business transaction. I'll give you this and then I'll be, uh, I'll be okay with you. That's not the gospel. It's not an if-then relationship. If I do this, then God will love me. Rather, it's a because-therefore. Because Christ died for me, therefore, I am his child. Because Christ died for me, therefore, I am not guilty before him. Let me go back to this passage in Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. I read this earlier. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore with your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you because the Lord has loved you therefore he has redeemed you because God favored Mary therefore she is qualified to bear the son of God We were in Ecuador a while back, and um, one of the individuals that I, I had an opportunity to have a conversation with out on the street, um, we had a nice conversation, and as most people in, in Ecuador has a very strong Catholic background, and so when we're sharing the gospel, we're not really talking about who Jesus is, That they, they have a good idea of who Jesus is is. So, so the issue we go to is are you certain, do you have assurance of your salvation? Can you be certain that you're saved? To which he replied, no. But then later on in the conversation, he said, yeah, I'm sure Sure, I'm saved. And I said, well, I'm a little confused. I, I, I don't quite get this. And, and as, we, as we talked and, and, and things began to unfold, he says, well, here's the thing. Sometimes I'm really good. And in that case, I'm certain that God loves me. And so therefore I'm saved. But other times I act poorly and act wrong in sin. And in those cases, then I'm not saved. You see, he has this transactional idea that when I'm a good person, God loves me. And when I'm a bad person and act, living out in sin, then God doesn't love me anymore. If I'm good, God will love me. And if I'm bad, God will not love me. That God's love kind of fluctuates up and down depending on His actions. What a horrible place to have to live. And it's horrible because it's not the gospel. And it's horrible because it's not in the Bible. That is man-made. That's a man-made idea. It fits our, our ideas of righteousness and justice, but it is not, does not fit heaven's idea of righteousness and justice. See, here's the thing. Grace is perplexing. It, it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand because it's so simple. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So once again, the angel turns around and says, Mary, you're graced by God. Don't be afraid. I love that. Grace removes fear. In other words, Mary, you have done nothing to obtain this favor, and there is nothing you can do to lose this favor. The favor was not... Grounded upon your goodness, and it will not be removed because of some sort of ungoodness. This was the problem my friend in Ecuador was, was trouble, did not understand. He thought that grace was effective when he was good, and it was absent when he was not. Grace does not ebb and flow. And since you are not the originator of grace, you do not earn your grace. You cannot unearn your grace. I think... I think of the song... before the throne of God, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. He seen Christ seated on the throne when Satan tempts me and shows me of all of my sin. That's when I say, You know what I haven't How can I be saved? But I look to the throne of grace and there I see my Redeemer who purchased my salvation for me. And there I see his wounds and his scars and there I see that he ever lives to make intercession for me. You see, my favor before God is not founded upon my goodness or lack of goodness. It is founded upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ never ebbs or flows. Jesus does not become more righteous or less righteous. His righteousness is not affected by your goodness or lack of goodness, by your failure or lack of failure. Those who are in Christ have received God's favor, and that favor doesn't come and go. I'm so thankful for that. And that's the mystery and the perplexity of grace. Really, why me? How does that work? Well, we see that Mary is the recipient of grace. But then we need to talk a little bit about the child that she's going to bear. And first of all, we will see then that the child that she is going to bear is the manifestation of God's grace. In fact, in Matthew chapter one, twenty-one we see this a similar account where it says, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will he will redeem his people from their sins. It is from Jesus that grace that grace comes. In fact we see this over in the book of, of John, chapter one, sixteen actually in a number of verses in the first chapter of John, but I'll just read verse 16. For from speaking of Christ... I'll just go up to 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From where does grace come? It comes from Jesus, the Savior of the world. It is from Him that we receive grace. You will bear a child, and you will name His name Jesus, which means God saves and God is going to save by grace. Jesus is the one who is filled with grace. And then we begin to see all of these royal terms ascribed to Jesus. First of all, he will be called the Son of the Most High. and This is a... Uh, has to do with Jesus, none being more powerful, none higher. And some people think, oh, well, this idea of son, that means he's less than the father. No son has the idea of essence. That is, he is of the same essence as the father. He is not less than the father. He is the exact representation of the father. We see that in Hebrews 1.3. We see it in John 14.9. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. We see it throughout the scriptures that he is an exact representation of our heavenly father. That if you've seen God, Or if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. He is the very essence of the Most High. There is none higher. And then notice this. And He will have. He talks begins to talk about the throne of His Father, father David. How it will be an eternal throne. You need to understand that Jesus Christ comes as Savior. That is born out in His very name. He came to save. But now we see the royal terms ascribed to him. Jesus did not just simply come to save, but he came to reign, and he came to rule. And his rule is eternal. Sometimes people want to somehow divide Christ up, that we can have him as Savior, but not as Lord, or we can have him as Lord, and not as I don't know, all of that stuff. All I know is I don't think you can divorce those things from one another, that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. That's who he is in his essence. And if you want him as Savior, he will be Lord. He will take over your life. He does not ask to come in and take a little part of your heart and just say, oh, well, let me come. No, I'm coming in and I'm taking over. I'm not coming in as a guest. I'm not the guest in your heart. I'm not the guest in your life. I am Lord and I am King and I will take over your household. That's what I'm going to do. So when we come and we make an invitation, do you want to, will you make Christ, will you repent and call upon the name of the Lord? When you do so, I'm just warning you. I don't want to chase you off. In fact, I want to encourage you. Because the greatest thing that can happen is that Christ will come over and take over your life. And that's exactly what He's going to do. Because He is Savior. He will save you. And He is Lord. He reigns forever and ever and ever. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and nothing can overthrow His kingdom. Not even the crucifixion could overthrow His kingdom. Not the schemes of men, not Antichrist, not... Beasts, none of these things can overthrow the kingdom of God. And we see this, remember, in Daniel chapter 7, that I saw this one like a son of man seated upon a throne, and to him was given dominion and a kingdom, and it was an eternal kingdom. And that comes in the context of this beast that is speaking blasphemous, vile things. And in the midst of this little horn is what it was, a little horn speaking arrogant and blasphemous things. Daniel says... I saw one like the son of man and to him was given power and dominion in the kingdom. This beast, this little horn is not the one who has power in the kingdom and the dominion, though it appears he he seems to think he does. He is arrogant in that manner, but it is Christ, the son of God who has kingdom and authority and dominion. And you can put him to death and hang him on a cross and it does not negate his kingdom. And then Mary asks this question, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And that's a pretty fair question. Some people think that Mary is doubting, but I just think it's puzzlement. Um, you'll note the contrast with uh, with Zacharias in the first, uh, what we studied last week. Zacharias doubted the angel and asked for a sign. Mary's not asking for a sign. She's just saying, okay, well, how's this thing going to work out? You, know, you do know that I'm not married. I've never had a relationship with a man. so So how's this going to work? Am I going to get married first and then this thing's going to happen? Or what's going on here? The answer she receives from the angel is, here's how it's going to work. Direct divine involvement, that's how it's going to work. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That is, the Holy Spirit is the the life-giving agent. He is the one who causes life to come about. and Of course we see this, one of the most famous places we see it is in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 14, where we read, And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do this declares the Lord. I'll put my spirit in you, and you will live. God is the creator of all things. He is the one who spoke all things in uh, into existence, he is the one who created mankind from the dust of the earth, and it is this God then who animates life by giving his spirit and Now the spirit will overshadow you and you can look up a couple of passages of textbook, this idea of overshadowing when the spirit of God overshadows something, it is uh, evidence that God is present. So, how's this going to happen? Well, God will be present, and the life giving spirit will do what the life giving spirit does. And if God can create the universe out of nothing, and if he can breathe life into the dust of the earth and create humankind, he can create life within you, Mary, though you have never known a man. Oh, by the way, nothing is impossible for God. So, nothing. I do like how he gives Elizabeth as an example or just as an affirmation. Talk to your cousin Elizabeth. She's in her six-month-of-pregnancy. You remember Elizabeth, don't you? She was too old to give birth. She's been trying for years to have a child. Not working, not happening. Go talk to her because God has done a divine work in her. See, Mary, nothing is impossible. How is this going to happen? Holy Spirit will overshadow you. I don't quite get this. Here's the deal, Mary. Nothing's impossible with God. This is important for us to understand that nothing is impossible with God. So the virgin conception is often viewed as a great miracle, and it ought to be. It is a great miracle. Sometimes people uh, consider it a barrier to their faith. They just say, well, I just can't believe all of these miraculous things that go on in the Bible, like you know, virgins giving birth and Red Seas parting and things like that. I don't know how all that happens. God creating the universe out of nothing. I don't see how that. I just can't believe that. Or we discussed on Wednesday night God creating a big fish to swallow Jonah. I don't know how all that happens. How can I believe that all these things happen? Nothing is impossible with God. Let me give you a greater impossibility a bigger impossibility than the Red Sea dividing and the Israelites walking across it on dry ground. Let me give you a bigger um, impossibility than that. Let me give you a bigger impossibility than a woman who has never been intimate with a man bearing a child. Let me give you a greater and bigger impossibility than that. Let me give you a greater and bigger impossibility that a dead man who was crucified, died for the sins of the world, placed in a tomb, and three days later rises again. Let me give you a greater impossibility. The greater impossibility is this that an individual who is hardened in his heart by sin has that heart softened and changed. Let me give you a bigger impossibility that a person who is a rebel against God lays down his arms and finds favor with the God to whom he rebelled against. I was a, often said, a guy who rebelled against God. I did not want God, did not need God, had no desire for God. My life was going fine. I was not down in the gutters with nowhere to go. I was pretty good. I was doing all right. God sent His agents and His servants and His messengers and I mocked them and laughed in their face and I defied the God of heaven. I'll give you a bigger impossibility that God took that person and said, and got him to lay down his arms, not unwillingly. Not like, oh, well, okay, well, I'll lay down my arms. You're stronger than me. I'll serve you. No! You are amazing! I'm laying down my arms. I want to be part of your kingdom. That's an impossibility. That's a greater impossibility than some woman who's never known a man bearing a child. That far outweighs. Red Sea party. You want a greater impossibility, dead men living. That is, you are dead by reason of your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with him. You want an impossibility? That's impossible. And yet, it happens day after day after day. I bet you I get a whole bunch of testimonies just in this room of people saying, Yes, I was dead by reason of my trespasses and sins, but God made me alive together. By grace I have been saved. You want impossible? That's impossible. That just can't happen, and it does. You want impossible? How about this: that in a person in whom no good thing exists, who's uh, who's vile and broken, whose heart is wicked, in that person, that person is made a friend of God. That a heart of stone would be softened. You want impossibility? That a person who is lost is found. Oh, not just lost. Doesn't even know they're lost. I was lost. And here's the crazy thing. I didn't know I was lost. I thought I was doing just fine. You can say, you're lost. No, I'm not. I know exactly where I am. at. I know exactly where I'm going. I know what I'm, I'm... I've got plans. I'm going to do this and that. I'm not lost. You're nuts to think I'm lost. You want impossible... Impossible is the God of heaven coming down and saying you're lost. I'm going, Yeah, I really am lost. I have no idea where I'm going. You're right. I am lost. Here's what's even crazier. That same God said, Not not anymore, you're not. I found you. Now, come. Not only were you a rebel, Who's laid down his arms? I don't want you to be just a citizen in my kingdom. I want you to be my child and heir of all of my promises. That's what I want. That's impossible. And that's what happens to every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord. In that light, a virgin conception is really kind of like, yeah, that, that makes sense. If I can believe that God would save someone like me, and I know some of you, and if God can save some. Of you who I know, that's a pretty big deal. This is exactly what the apostles, the disciples thought, that Jesus dealt with this rich young ruler and Christ basically came to him and said, basically, sell all you have and come and follow me. And he rejected Christ. He went away unjustified. And the the disciples said, if he can't be saved, then who can? You see, he was a rich man. Rich men were considered favored by God. If anybody had God's blessings, it was the rich. Here was a guy who's obviously favored by God. And if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's right. With God, even saving Folks like you and me is not out of the realm of possibility. So, what does Mary do? This is what Mary does. She lays down her life and follows. I love her response. Oh, if we could only have her be be people with this kind of response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Wow. See, she is the recipient of grace and now she responds to grace. And how does she respond to grace? She says, "Lord, I'm yours. Do whatever you want with me. Whatever you see fit, I will lay down my life and I will allow you to do with me as you see best." How about you? Have you received God's grace? Has your response been, then here I am, your bond servant, your slave, do with me as you see fit. Can you trust God to do that in your life? Can you trust God? To say, I'll let you do whatever you want in my life. I'll close with this. Nothing is impossible with God. I want to speak just briefly to two groups of people. The first group is those who are not following Christ. there are any here today who have um, never been the recipient of Christ, the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, here's what I need to exhort, for you, exhort you to do. You come by God's favor. You do not come by God's merit. So lay down your good works. Lay down your justifications. Lay down your merit. Lay down all of your reasons why God ought to love you. Lay those aside. You come by grace. You come by God's unmerited favor. That if God is calling you right now, if you sense that, man, I need to get right with God, that is God's grace right now. And it is because, not because of your merit, not because of your virtue, not because of your character, not because you have a skill set that God finds favorable or admirable. It is because God has loved you. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable time. Lay down your arms and receive the grace of Christ second group I'd like to speak to, those of you who are followers of Christ. And it is time that you and I lay down our lives, take up our cross and follow him. Jesus very clearly said, if you want to be my disciple, you must lay down your life, take up my cross and follow after me. This is the response to grace. The response to grace is lay down my life, die to yourself. Take up your cross. It's an instrument of shame. Because following Christ may be, be may bring shame to your life. People may mock you and think that you're odd or weird or out of touch or whatever. Lay down your life. Die to yourself. Take up the cross of shame which is and follow after your Lord. There is no one worth more worth following than Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, nothing is impossible with God. That means that God can create life in you and God can save the lost. And if you wander too far from God this day, I want you to know that it is not impossible for God to come and snatch you back. If you've never come to God, you are not too far gone. There is nothing that you have done or thought or said or participated in that would make it impossible for God to save you. Nothing. And if you're wondering how do I lay down my life, I don't know if I can. Nothing is impossible with God. He will enable you and empower you to do the very thing that He has called you to do. And so, with that, let's stand and let's pray. Father, you called us to respond to grace. First of all, we thank you for grace. We thank you for unmerited favor that you've loved us with such a great love. So have mercy upon us. Father, this day, I pray we would follow the example of your servant, Mary. Let it be done to me as you see fit. I am your bondservant. I am your slave. Do with me, Lord, as you see fit, whatever that may be even if it's uncomfortable or unpleasant. Whatever you see fit to do in me, Lord, do. So we thank you and we praise you and we ask that your spirit be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for coming today. We uh, uh, we do have a fellowship meal downstairs, and I would invite everybody to join us for that. It's always a good time. There's always plenty of food. And so with that, let's go ahead and bless one another. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that